This past April, the FBI disclosed an astonishing fact about the breach of the blockchain behind the popular play-to-earn game Axie Infinity a few weeks earlier. The FBI said that the hackers who stole $615 million in cryptocurrency were from the group Lazarus, which has direct ties to the government of North Korea. Needless to say, the White House was not happy to hear the news. North Korean cyber actors have for a long time engaged in cyber-enabled financial crime to steal funds in order to further fund regime priorities, including their proliferation activities. So ultimately, this is, this is an example of where issues in the crypto space around absence of sufficient prudential obligations and or compliance in the space internationally can lead to issues like national security threats. That was the case in ransomware, and there's certainly no accident to why one of the key prongs of the U.S. counter-ransomware strategy is about combating the misuse of cryptocurrency, um, because cryptocurrency has uniquely, because of some of its risk features and the absence of sufficient regulation to mitigate those risks, has enabled uh, the rise of the scale and severity of ransomware. Hello, everyone. I'm Chitra Raghavan, and this is Techtopia. According to news accounts, Axie Infinity was the largest decentralized finance hack and the second largest crypto hack in history. To add insult to injury, the brazen attack had taken place just weeks after President Joe Biden had released an executive order authorizing a whole-of-federal-government approach to de-risking digital assets. It was the equivalent of North Korea thumbing its nose at the U.S. government, and that's not something the White House takes kindly to. The nature of hacks like this, including sufficient controls for cybersecurity and anti-money laundering that can enable rogue nations and other national security threats like ransomware attacks, brings into question how the federal government should de-risk, regulate, and enforce digital assets, and what the role of the famously libertarian crypto industry should be in helping police the space. I'm so delighted to have as my guest today a key White House official who has been talking about this and thinking about this and working on these complex issues for years. Carol House is the Director for Cybersecurity and Secure Digital Innovation for the White House National Security Council. House joined the NSE from the U.S. Treasury's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN, where she led cybersecurity, virtual currency, and emerging technology policy efforts as a senior cyber and emerging technology policy officer. Carol, welcome to Techtopia. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be tackling these cutting edge challenges that go to the heart of the future of finance. Literally, that's what we're talking about. Walk us a little bit through your background and career trajectory. Sure. Uh, it's been just a wonderful career and an amazing and totally unexpected path. I really started as, as an army officer working in chem, bio, rad, nuclear defense, actually. Uh, and then also then served as a military intelligence officer doing collection management. So all the assets that watch and listen to people, it was my job to make sure that they were pointed in the right direction to support um, our operators. After that, uh, I did my first tour in the White House at the Office of Management and Budget standing up a cyber and national security unit. I supported a lot of our work to help secure the federal civilian agency enterprise. I did some time with Senate Homeland Security, also supporting cybersecurity and critical infrastructure supply chain work. And then finally came to FinCEN, like you mentioned. And I came to FinCEN by trying to figure out what are some of the key issues around cybercrime that are some of the causes behind, behind the illicit activity that we saw targeting institutions and critical infrastructure. Um, and FinCEN being at the forefront of this uh, since most cybercrime is really financial crime. So I came over to the team to do work and explore like what we could drive on the cybersecurity side to combat cyber-enabled financial crime. And you can't really do that without talking about cryptocurrency because Cybercriminals' favored way to, to launder proceeds, um, to purchase their exploit kits up front, or to launder um, and obfuscate their illicit flows in the back end tends to be cryptocurrency. So in that case, then, I got to help drive a lot of the policy work that FinCEN was doing as the primary regulator for most crypto companies um, and, and covering all of them that operate in the U.S. for anti-money laundering purposes. Got to help drive a lot of strategic policy work with the Financial Action Task Force, um, as well as investment 
investigative work. Um, I even got to support some cases and investigations involving illicit cryptocurrency flows, um, as well as regulatory work. So looking at rulemakings, as well as administrative rulings, um, looking at holistically what we want to do to make sure that we continue to evolve the Bank Secrecy Act framework, which is a living framework to to adapt with the risk as it continues to evolve with the threat landscape as well as the mitigation landscape. So in, in the wake of all of that work that we were driving at FinCEN, at the turn of the administration, White House leadership, specifically the Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Tech, Ann Neuberger, was speaking with me and we discussed the need for driving a whole of government approach on cryptocurrency, on ransomware, on identity. And I was so thrilled that she decided to bring me aboard to, to try to help drive that work. So through all of that now, we've stood up a U.S. counter ransomware strategy, which has an entire prong devoted to combating the misuse of crypto. That then also uh, got to work with others across the White House and the interagency uh, to develop and then help issue and implement the executive order that President Biden issued earlier this year on ensuring responsible development of digital assets. And then also in working on some digital identity initiatives for the administration. It's just an incredible trajectory. And it almost feels like, you know, every single thing you did in your career kind of brought you to this point where you could actually really uh, bring tremendous value, you know, in understanding exactly how the future of finances is uh, is actually going to lay itself out, which is, you know, we, we don't really know. But I just feel like, and maybe you feel the same way, that every single piece of your experience is now <laughs> being brought to bear in what you're doing. You are totally right. I am amazed and astounded sometimes at how completely blessed and, and lucky I am and also how um, things even that I didn't desire or necessarily want or expect at times in my career ultimately ended up being huge blessings and things that I never expected. Um, if someone had told me that I would end up in a role of regulating cryptocurrency um, back when I was in the army as, as a chemical officer, I, I never would have imagined that. I would have assumed counterproliferation work or an intelligence would have assumed I would be in the IC. I never never would have imagined that it brought me here. And I appreciate that you pointed to like intersections of things and being able to leverage um, all these different aspects of, of, of one's background. Because I think crypto really is, is a great example of a place where you can bring so many different aspects of one's background, whether it's national security, whether it's financial, whether it's technology, identity, inclusion. There's so many different elements and backgrounds that that people might have in other spaces, but that are so applicable in the cryptocurrency world. So you were saying that, you know, there's this intersection, right, of all of these different pieces of this puzzle of uh, what is going to make the future of digital finance and decentralized finance. Um, maybe you could start by giving us, you know, before we go into that Axie Infinity hack, because this plays into that, what exactly for our lay audience, what is decentralized finance? What you see the future of finance looking like and unfolding? And then we can talk about some of the challenges of the nature of what the, that future of finance is going to look like. Great question. So decentralized finance, I'll try to level set on sort of how, how industry views what it is. So of course, it's leveraging emerging technologies, including blockchain technologies, as well as other types of distributed ledger technologies. Um, th there's other types besides blockchain, like Hashgraph, that you can use, but ultimately these decentralized networks that support distributed computing, leverage encryption to establish trust and establish these public ledgers or private ledgers to be able to, to keep a record about certain types of activity, and in the case of DeFi, specifically financial activity. So the way that DeFi normally looks like is it could be a smart contract that is basically operating in an automated way that, that can be leveraged to support some kind of financial function. So whether that's trading, whether that's escrow services, whether it's uh, money transmission, the idea behind behind these smart contracts and the, the concept of true DeFi, truly decentralized finance, really means that there isn't an intermediary that's sitting behind it, that's owning and operating and running these platforms. A human. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, but I'll mention that on on this this concept of DeFi that's that's truly decentralized, um, the reality of the way that that's being implemented is generally. FinCEN, as well as other agencies, have pointed to the fact that they're not really seeing most DeFi being 
true DeFi or full DeFi. Um, so just like anything like security or immutability, centralization is a spectrum. And there really are not many things, if anything's at all, that we've seen currently being used and operated in the space that really are fully decentralized. There's some level of centralization on this spectrum. So I know I've heard regulators at times use this term CDFI, centralized, decentralized finance. So I think that there's definitely some tension out there about, about the, the label DeFi and how much of it truly is decentralized, um, or where are the centralized points of influence inside of some of these ecosystems. So I, I wanted to help level set for some folks about the fact that DeFi is a label that's often put on anything that is blockchain based, even though you can implement blockchains in a way that is private and has highly centralized points of influence. You can do them in a way that is much more decentralized. It really all depends on where you're sitting on the spectrum. And the concept of DeFi is that you're leveraging these kinds of technologies in order to support financial activity. In many cases, age-old financial activity that has existed for, for decades or centuries, things like money transmission, um, as well as engaging in activity to trade securities and derivatives contracts. Yeah, and but you know, for FinCEN and for the for other agencies that are trying to make sense of this and regulate it in some way and de-risk it, it raises this whole spectrum of philosophical, logistical, practical, legal questions that uh, that are just incredible. I mean, I think you put it really well when we were chatting the other day of like, can you regulate software? You know, how do you do that? So, so how are you dealing with all of those issues? And what are sort of some of the core issues you're trying to to deal with from a federal government perspective? Well, you've you've really hit on some of the the tough futurescape issues, I think, in the world of DeFi and trying to mitigate risk in this space. And you're right that some of it's philosophical. Um, you, you mentioned uh, there's certainly some very strong uh, positions from especially some of the originators in, in the cryptocurrency world and ecosystem. You know, it's, it's an environment that was originally envisioned and built to be decentralized and to not rely upon intermediaries, specifically envisioned to try to address a lot of the core issues um, and not having to rely on the institutions that were at play and some of the cause of the 2008-2009 financial crisis. In the wake of all of that, though, ultimately in centralized intermediaries have arisen. Um, for a lot of different reasons, intermediaries can provide incredibly valuable services. They can do things like custody because many Americans don't, don't keep their cash underneath their, their mattresses. In the world of crypto, some Americans do want to hold their assets in unhosted wallets and not have to rely upon these intermediaries. Other people do want to hold it in an intermediary because of the ease of access, you know, being able to rely upon another entity to try to maintain security around those assets, as well as the other conveniences that you get from leveraging the services that some of these intermediaries provide. Um, so just like in the fiat space, there's a mix of disintermediated space and decentralized use and also reliance upon intermediaries. So I think that seeing that means that on the regulatory side, long existent regulatory frameworks have been able to be applied um, to the intermediaries that were engaging in these, like I mentioned before, age-old types of financial activity that have had technology-neutral re regulatory frameworks in place for, in the case of money transmission since at least 2011, or in the case of securities laws for potentially like much, much longer. So in, in that world where I think that what you're seeing is that the U.S. regulatory framework has looked from a tech neutral perspective fundamentally at what is the economic activity that's occurring and figuring out how to apply that to this space. In the world of DeFi, of, the, of, of true DeFi, there's potentially real challenges where regulators would see that there are regulatory frameworks that really rely upon imposing obligations on these intermediaries. It's going to challenge some of those, those key issues. Some of that challenge is really finding where there is in fact centralization and there really are intermediaries where certain parts of industry may claim that there are none. But in other cases like of true DeFi, I think that the future may involve regulators with industry, with international partners, all having to think through what does a regulatory framework look like in a world of true DeFi? What happens when there truly is just software and there are no persons that are owning or operating or administering those platforms? 
since right now money transmission platforms are money transmission is regulated regardless of whether it's done physically or if it's done electronically or if it's done leveraging blockchain ledgers. But what do you do when you have things that maybe you can impose policy requirements on, but how do you enforce those obligations? So I think those are going to be some of the real key problems and issue areas that regulators are going to have to think through. They're going to have to think through the intermediaries that currently exist that conduct activity that's already regulated. Consider if there's other intermediaries where new obligations should be imposed because risk isn't being sufficiently mitigated. I think that there's there's going to have to be a lot considered in what the future evolution of our risk-based approach looks like. So now that we've kind of set the table, so to speak, let's talk about this Axie Infinity hack, how that occurred, and what was your sense of what was the reaction at the White House when you learned that this more than half a billion dollar theft had been actually traced back to a state-sponsored actor directly, you know, working with North Korea. Oh, that's um, another another great question, given my role with the National Security Council. So, of course, this major theft was of extreme concern um, and drew a lot of attention of the interagency. Ultimately, the U.S. government, um, and as um, initially announced by the Federal Bureau of Investigation, we determined and attributed this activity to Lazarus Group and uh, DPRK cyber actors. So of course that's of extreme concern to us because North Korean cyber actors have for a long time engaged in cyber enabled financial crime to steal funds in order to further fund regime priorities, including their proliferation activities. So ultimately this is this is an example of where issues in the crypto space around absence of sufficient prudential obligations and or compliance in the space internationally can lead to issues like national security threats. That was the case in ransomware. And there's certainly no accident to why one of the key prongs of the US counter ransomware strategy is about combating the misuse of cryptocurrency um, because cryptocurrency has uniquely because of some of its risk features and the absence of sufficient regulation to mitigate those risks has enabled the rise of the scale and severity of ransomware. Though, of course, if we address those risks, if we mitigate them, then potentially we can address that um, and try to you know, defeat ransomware as the significant national security threat that it is right now. On the DPRK side, a lot of the same challenges persist here that exist for ransomware. Insufficient international regulation of cryptocurrency and insufficient compliance and controls for things like, like identity, as well as cybersecurity controls being built into the ecosystem. Like So these issues, both on the regulatory side being layered in on top, but also the absence of sufficient security security controls being baked into the system, very similar to the issues that we face in cyber around software not being developed with security in mind in the first place. All of these have created an environment that can potentially enable rogue regime activities. So I think just to summarize that there was certainly a lot of concern. You know, we very much supported what the interagency did in attributing that activity um, and in OFAC taking steps to highlight to the public that these addresses and uh, that these addresses were associated with this theft and were associated with these illicit actors to try to make sure that everyone knew that this was associated with a sanctioned actor with cybercrime perpetrated by a rogue nation. Yeah, but the the unfortunate thing is that with these types of attacks, they're so fast, right, and so uh, well executed that uh, you know even though the the address was listed, uh, you know, as a sanctioned entity by then, right, uh, quite a bit of that money had been laundered, and I can't imagine if a large portion of it will ever be recovered. Is there anything you can say about sort of where we are in that process, and and did we essentially lose it all to North Korea? Well, there's nothing special that I can preview there, except that the U.S. government remains very alert to this issue, um, and we will continue to take steps to disrupt North Korean cybercrime activity, including in um, instances of thefts like this. I will say that since you spoke to steps that need to exist and occur, there needs to be you know, opportunities and partnerships for the U.S. government, but also for industry to be able to share information related to illicit cryptocurrency flows and to enable action, uh, to be able to do something about it. 
Obviously, regulation is a key part of that, because in certain cases, how can you take certain action if you don't know where the funds went to, if you don't know who was behind it, you don't know what the money laundering network supporting this activity ends up looking like, and the personas behind it. But aside from just regulation, this issue, um, especially in the context of ransomware, was what drove the initial launch of the illicit virtual asset notification system, the IVAN partnership that the FBI and the National Cyber Investigative Joint Task Force, NCIJTF, have led. That's something that they're currently operating to try to enhance our ability to work with industry to rapidly trace and interdict these flows. But it's not just about government work and sharing information. It's also going to be about industry sharing information with each other and leveraging what the opportunities for sharing info under liability protections, like those from 314B, those from the Cyber Info Sharing Act. Um, so I think that we're also looking to consider what else is needed to be able to enable not just the government being able to take action, but also industry who really sits on the front lines of all of this and being able to detect it and be able to do something about it hopefully being able to take steps to mitigate their own exposure to potential sanctions violations, which carry strict liability standards, and then also just work to try to prevent their platforms from being exploited by North Korea. And Axie Infinity was set to be like the largest decentralized finance hack in history. But in order for that to have happened, that theft, were there humans in the mix? And if so, how do you essentially deal with that situation, especially when often you know, these types of groups can offer massive amounts of money to have, as you know, you're the cyber expert um, to have that cyber vulnerability, to create that vulnerability for them to be able to get into these systems. Really appreciate the tee up for the discussion about responsibilities on securing these systems, um, which have been compromised for many, many years. But as, as we're mentioning before, the insufficiency of proper controls can end up posing national security threats um, when actors like North Korea and other uh, types of illicit actors like ransomware networks exploit these issues. Not wanting to speak specifically to Axie Infinity or any other specific company, but I will highlight that like these systems have key centralized players. They have, you know, there are, there are those who are not just necessarily developing the systems, but those who administer the systems, continue to own and operate these platforms. You have stakers, you have miners, you have a variety of different types of stakeholders in these ecosystems, depending on, um, on, on which currency it is, um, what platforms they are and how they're being operated. So in those cases, there's a lot of questions to be asked around what are the governance models how centralized are these systems? Where are the points of centralized influence? Even if it's decentralized, like what are the weaknesses in decentralization on the inability to be able to push the kinds of updates or to um, to, to build in and, and su support um, integrating the kinds of protections that you need in those systems? Um, there's different vulnerabilities um, as well as strengths that you get depending on how you implement the systems. Um, but in this case, you know, insufficient and poor cybersecurity um, and, like, behind behind these platforms um, consistent with what uh, with what CISA, the cyber agency at THS and the FBI uh, posted publicly about in their alert about North Korean actors targeting blockchain platforms right in, in the wake of this hack. Um, they point to the fact that like phishing and like very basic cyber intrusions um, are typically the things that are being leveraged up front in the conduct of this activity and the kinds of protections and indicators of compromise that would be useful for these institutional players to integrate. So I think that lo really looking very hard at what are the cybersecurity practices of those who carry such significant influence or ability to affect high value transactions, whether in a blockchain ecosystem or in a tra traditional bank, like in cases of business email compromise, you know, these are some of the basic protections that the crypto sector needs to take to heart as well. Yeah, and as you mentioned earlier, right, this is a whole different ballgame here. We're talking transnational crimes, we're talking, you know, national security threats when, you know, more than half a billion dollars goes to North Korea, and we don't know where those funds could go, whether it's going towards their nuclear programs, weapons manufacturer, you know, other hostile actions taken towards towards the US. I guess my question is, it is a whole different ballgame. Does the industry understand, you know, there's a huge libertarian ethos. Does the industry or do the industries that will constitute the future of digital finance and decentralized finance understand that 
the global stakes have changed. And so their judgment around and their actions around how to protect themselves has to be at an order of magnitude different than when, when it used to be these, uh, you know, small time kind of mom and pop security uh, threats. I certainly hope that it has. And I, I am encouraged by some of the trends and evolution that I've seen in the digital asset ecosystem, even over just the past several years. I mean, I remember several years ago being in a private sector forum where like around like a hundred members of the cryptocurrency space were all highlighting how it's impossible to build in anti-money laundering controls, how, you know, these are all decentralized systems without intermediaries. There's no ability to understand like, you know, who's on the other side of the internet. Um, and like the, the conversation has just changed so much in the past three years. Now there's key significant players, including some of the folks that are in those forums who are now at the forefront of, of driving, you know, conversation around how do you build in compliance to some of these ecosystems. And, um, and I, I think that that's a very encouraging series of developments where you're seeing now real tangible solutions around the travel rule, leveraging technologies that have been existent for a while, but finally having to, you know, work together to figure out what is the implementation that will actually work for the space um, or for some of these partners. Like that is, that is very encouraging. I remember being told that it's it will be impossible to comply with the travel rule. Um, and we highlighted there have been technologies around for decades that can enable that kind of compliance. Um, it's and very for our lay audience, the travel rule is... Oh yeah, of course. Sorry, that, that's a great point. Um, so the travel rule is an obligation under financial regulations, um, especially under anti-money laundering regulations, to really for financial institutions to have to understand who is their customer, um, to collect certain information about it, and then send that relevant information to the receiving financial institution. So in the case of like a wire transfer, um, you know, banks and other financial institutions collect information about the originator, other information around the transaction, and then they transmit that information to the receiving financial institution. So the receiving bank on the other side, um, and that has information about the originator as well as the beneficiary. And then the receiving institution gets that information. And this is the kind of information that's so critical to help both sides understand, okay, not only who owns this account, what is the account number, what is the person and the identity behind it to be able to, you know, to properly successfully, you know, credit the, the receiving account, but also to comply with anti-money laundering obligations to really understand like what is the risk profile like who who am i receiving money from um to do things like sanction screening um and understand if you're possibly you know receiving a transfer from a designated person um there's a lot of consistency between these these obligations for anti-money laundering purposes, for sanctions purposes, and even just for basic like account purposes. Um, so that obligation also applies in the cryptocurrency space where, you know, if you have a transfer between one cryptocurrency exchange um, and another, they have to collect this information about their customer and share it with the other side. And only through complying with the travel rule can both sides really understand what kind of risk exposure are you taking on? Um, so it's totally consistent with, with broader anti-money laundering requirements. Um, and it's something that the crypto sector had not acknowledged or done a lot to really try to comply with for many years. But in recent years, there's been a huge focus on trying to figure out how to build out the solutions that can comply with this obligation. Um, so that, you know, other types of obligations or, or other types of innovations like decentralized identity standard are being, uh, that are being supported across the industry, looking at things like privacy enhancements. Um, there's been a lot of interest in looking at security standards and trying to figure out what is the right way that you should be custodying cryptocurrencies and these private keys. These kinds of evolutions, I think, are a really good indicator of a maturing of the crypto space. And I think that that's very true in the DeFi world. Like there are folks in the DeFi space that are recognizing, you know, potentially that they that they may be regulated based on how centralized they are and if there's owner operators or administrators behind them. And then others maybe that feel that they are not regulated are also just trying to figure out how to build in the right kinds of protections that will just be be valuable and desirable to a society. Society doesn't want financial systems to be able to be exploited by, by child exploiters and by ransomware criminals um, and by cyber criminals that are stealing directly from the crypto space. There is an interest for the community 
I think, to want to invest in itself to figure out how to try to evolve, there's still very significant risks in the space that have to be addressed, as well as certain risks that that, that the space ha- may not have been like properly prioritizing or focusing on yet. But at least on the anti-money laundering side, you know, after many years of effort and focused messaging from the regulators, including from FinCEN, SEC, banking agencies, um, I've at least been encouraged to see that the conversation has has evolved to um, to to a more encouraging extent. And it's a big challenge, isn't it? Because on the one hand, here you are from you know the policy perspective, regulatory perspective, uh, you know, trying to really sort of put your arms around this huge, huge numbers of issues that that you've mentioned. And then parallel in the law enforcement space, right, there's this huge effort to really understand all of the extent of criminal activity that is taking place on, on the blockchain and other, you know, systems, digital asset systems. And so it, it's just like, you know, you're kind of operating in some ways in in kind of this vacuum because you know how high is the is the criminal usage of cryptocurrency right where is it happening so it seems like you're kind of um, sailing the ship while you are uh, while you are building it <laughs> I think that's that is an interesting way to describe it. it you know I think that's right for what a lot of the sector has done there there has been primarily in fact a launch before before actually thinking about or building in basic things like compliance, which expose a lot of the sector very much to potential enforcement action, whether whether from FinCEN, whether from the SEC or CFTC, um, the banking agencies, um, if they potentially have charters there. Again, there's been an evolution that is not true for all institutions. There's been a growth uh, in certain cryptocurrency companies that have been trying to seek approval or building in some of the compliance obligations like we talked about before. Um, So I am encouraged by that. But yes, there has been historically a lot of activity in the space that definitely launched and started to operate and conduct activity long before they thought about some of the very basic obligations that they they were subject to. So you've spent the past year spearheading this sprawling multi-agency effort that culminated in March in this executive order by President Biden called Ensuring Responsible Development of Digital Assets. And this is sort of near and dear to your heart. Tell us a little bit about this executive order and what it does. <laughs> Thank you so much. And you're right. I um, this, this EO, it was, it was an honor to be a part of it. And I'm so thrilled um, that President Biden supported it and issued it. The interagency is currently driving a lot of incredible efforts for it. So the executive order really tries to strike an important balance about mitigating the key significant risks that exist in this space, um, have, have long existed and continue to evolve and grow in certain ways, um, but also trying to make sure that we are promoting the responsible developments that we want in this space to make sure that the U.S. you know maintains its critical role in the financial system, that we maintain a home for innovation in emerging technologies, as well as fintech. Uh, so all of these things are really at the heart of what is of what is established in the executive order. So the EO does a couple of key things. It establishes a comprehensive federal framework um, to ensure that we continue to play this leading role in innovation and governance of digital assets at home and abroad, You know, drive consistency with our democratic values and also benefit US global competitiveness. Second, the EO directs relevant departments and agencies to initiate research into the merits of a US central bank digital currency. Um, this research, along with the framework that we're developing for aspects like international engagement and competitiveness, will help ensure that we preserve the critical role of the U.S. in the global financial system. And then third, it requires for the development of coordinated action plan to mitigate illicit finance and national security risks posed by the misuse of digital assets. Um, so this really points to, to key issues like that I mentioned before, that most of these systems were not designed with critical controls like identity, sanction screening, uh, prevacability of illicit transactions being built in, whether through governance or technology controls. So ultimately, we need to make sure that that we're developing these systems in a secure way. So all of these are some of the key issues in the executive order. There's efforts like uh, an assessment on what the future of money looks like that will inform these broader efforts um, and examine what the interplay of public and private money should look like for the future, um, You know, looking at consumer and market protections, financial stability risks that are at play in the ecosystem. 
And then also, like I mentioned before, looking at some of the critical capacity and technology needs uh, for a potential US central bank digital currency. So a lot of really, really great efforts underway. You know, we've already seen the Department of Justice publish their report on how to enhance international cooperation on law enforcement investigations involving illicit cryptocurrency activities. We've also seen the Department of Commerce publish a request for comment uh, to help them build the first ever competitiveness framework for the United States in digital assets and their underlying technologies. Um, just lots of really incredible, innovative work bringing together a whole community of agencies beyond just Treasury and the regulators. It has law enforcement. Um, it has the Department of Defense. It has the National Science Foundation, USAID, just an incredible range of authorities and capabilities that are being brought to this problem set. So in addition to the Axie Infinity case that we talked about, you know, you are also seeing now this big story around uh, the giant crypto bank Celsius, which is, you know, essentially uh, preventing withdrawals from because of this huge kind of a lending crisis that it's trying to resolve. Uh, and it uh, it seems like that also is sort of a case study for you as you try to execute on this huge um, executive order on sort of some of the key priorities that might be surfacing from some of these big cases, big issues, big hacks, uh, and other like, you know, in the case of Celsius, the freeze of withdrawals and what that means for all of the um, the customers. How is that kind of framing uh, your thinking on, on these things? Are you reprioritizing the executive order and the kinds of things that need to surface based on uh, things like Axie Infinity and Celsius? I'll definitely say that the executive order is not pointed at any one particular company um, or, or one particular cryptocurrency or, or even country. But of course, the executive order was not issued in a vacuum and we're not implementing it in one. So you're totally right that, I mean, we're the, the U.S. government is seeing the things that are happening in the marketplace, including, you know, incredibly volatile prices and values, um, as, as well as major issues around um, around actual backing and capital reserves behind certain assets, the insufficiency of prudential requirements, like I mentioned before, or insufficiency of compliance with long existing regulatory obligations for securities activity. Lots of different really troubling trends um, have been occurring in this space for a long time. And of course, of late, some very significant ones have certainly risen to the attention of the US government. So first I'll say that I think that it just reinforces um, our continued prioritization of the executive order. So we will definitely continue to be looking at a lot of these issues that, that really point to the absence of proper market protections, proper requirements that need to be built in to protect consumers, You know, ensure that there are proper disclosures, ensure that the right types of like sound business practices that need to exist for financial institutions are in fact in play. So I think that really um, we don't want to presuppose what the interagency policy committee is going to generate um, as, as a result of the taskings for a lot of these assessments and the policy recommendations that the president has asked for. But ultimately, I would expect that a lot of the policy recommendations are going to try to elevate and institute some of the key protections that I just mentioned are clearly insufficient in the space at this time. So whether it's actually new policy, whether it's scaling enforcement, whether it's driving, you know, development and research and development into solutions that can enhance and support better compliance in the space, there's a lot of different levers that could be pushed. Um, but I definitely think that taking a look at what the right types of regulatory frameworks and controls are that need to be put in place on these prudential issues is a very serious point of concern for the administration. In addition to this executive order, um, you have also been involved in another executive order, uh, and uh, this is around the whole idea of identity, and that could intersect in some ways or many ways, uh, I don't know, with cryptocurrency and, and uh, digital assets. Could you talk a little bit about uh, the identity-focused executive order and what it entails? Yes, I can. And identity has been near and dear to my heart for, for many years uh, as a cyber nerd, but, uh, but also at FinCEN where identity really sits at the heart of any effective anti-money laundering framework. Um, and of course it plays a significant role in cybercrime because cybercrime is trying to target you know, identity information and credentials to conduct fraud in the future or to escalate privileges to be able to move across networks to get access to sensitive data. Um, and then of course the absence of sufficient identity in the cryptocurrency ecosystem really, ha it has been um, the most 
I, I think the most impactful contributing factor to why crypto continues to be exploited to the scale that it is. So identity plays a critical role in crypto. Um, the identity EO that's currently under development is not specifically pointed at crypto, though I think that any significant moves that look at identity will end up having significant implications for the financial sector and just more broadly what ultimately may be done in the future of identity since it plays such a critical role in finance, like I mentioned. Um, but the executive order that is currently under development that was announced in the wake of the State of the Union address in a fact sheet that the White House posted we are looking to figure out what are the right measures that the U.S. government needs to put in place to try to combat significant identity theft and fraud that has occurred in public benefits programs, including a significant amount that occurred in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic and a lot of criminals um, and syndicates that worked to defraud the U.S. government and therefore the American taxpayer um, out of significant amounts of funds. So we're looking at what are the right measures that need to be put in place to try to make sure that we can safeguard these federal benefits programs to make sure that the payments and benefits are going to the right people to prevent this identity theft and fraud in these programs. Um, so we're going to be looking at what are the right measures to put in place to drive you know, stronger, better, more secure identity but also look at, at, at the other side of securing identity, which means making sure that we're addressing issues around privacy, around equitable outcomes and bias minimization. So I'm very excited about this executive order that's under development and will be issued in the coming weeks. I think that it will have some really great measures that will be able to help Americans and make sure that we can provide the right kinds of services that are needed to support those who are victims of identity theft in, pub in public benefits programs. And in the crypto space, um, you know, identity has a very unique weight, right? Because it is considered, you know, by libertarians, you know, even in even like in pursuing and solving crimes, et cetera, that identity has to be protected because that is the ethos of blockchain technology and, and digital assets. So I imagine that you're getting quite a bit of lively feedback from from various groups as you as you try to navigate this and, and how, how is the federal government going to navigate this question of identity when it comes to cryptocurrency and de-risking this space? Yeah, that's that's a, a really great point. I definitely was in a a friendly debate recently with someone from the DeFi space whose view very explicitly was that there is no room for identity in the world of DeFi. And I fundamentally disagree. I do not think that DeFi can work um, without building in identity. That does not mean publishing publicly PII for the world to see. And, and, and it may not inherently mean identity tied to everything. Part of the key challenge that I think that we'll face in this space is where you have platforms that aren't just DeFi. Um, it's decentralized networks supporting other things like information transfer. So I, I think that when you have this commingling of technologies that enable things that like that the internet does in transmitting, you know, just like information, um, as well as you know this commingling with um, with systems that allow for financial transfer. Identity is critical to financial transfer, making sure that the right person is in fact getting these funds. Um, if there was in fact a fraud, being able to try to be able to assert your identity and ownership over something and hopefully being able to have a way to be able to recover those assets, um, providing you know, account services and being able to leverage all those higher order developments that are going to come on top of these blockchain platforms will require some form of identity. That, that doesn't necessarily mean knowing everything about my persona. It may not be my official identity completely. It may not be my gamer tag um, and my terrible accuracy score um, when I'm playing on my Xbox. Um, there's a lot of different things that really comprise one's identity. So there's, there's different types of, of aspects of identity that will have to be built into these decentralized networks. In the world of DeFi, there really will have to be some kind of approach that that is pursued to make sure that the right information about one's official identity is present and potentially discoverable for appropriate due process, consistent with whatever is needed under an anti-money laundering framework. 
now for, for centralized intermediaries, those requirements are currently established under risk-based requirements for money services businesses, like most cryptocurrency exchanges are, or for some rules-based requirements, like under the customer identification program requirements that banks are subject to, since some crypto companies do have bank charters now, I wanted to mention that. But under a risk-based approach, you know, DeFi platforms will have to think about what is the right amount and type of information to be able to collect consistent with their risk-based approach to make sure that they can really understand the risk profile of who they're engaging with. And some of that information I think will be helpful and fundamental to those, those future higher order developments, like I mentioned, of being able to, to leverage blockchain systems in future smart cities and, and broader digital infrastructure and services. But I think that a lot of key questions are really going to have to be asked about like, what is the extent and nature of the information that ultimately should, should be present um, and, or must be present and must be discoverable in certain systems based on the risk features or mitigations that they have. That's the benefit of programmable money. You can program them to be as, as vulnerable or as secure as you want. You just have to build it and design it that way. So I think that there will have to be a balancing act between certain mitigations and, and certain risk features that will exist about information that exists and that can be discoverable. Um, and then some level of risk tolerance. Risk mitigation does not mean removing all risk um, and you know a surveillance state or a police state. Um, it means that based on a risk-based approach, looking at what are the right kinds of mitigations, which also means identity information being available and discoverable upon some type of, of due process for either financial institutions that are engaging with you or for law enforcement authorities um, and regulators. As we wrap up, Carol, you said to me a couple of days ago that this is no longer just about like solving crimes and you know not just about that, but it's about what side of history uh, we will land. What did you mean by that? I think that especially for, well, for the, on, on the government side, we definitely want to make sure that we get our approach to the digital asset system right. Like I mentioned before, the U.S. approach is not an authoritarian approach. Um, it is one that will reflect democratic principles. It will promote principles like those that were put forward by the G7 for retail central bank digital currencies, and we'll continue to promote those, whether whether we pursue a US CBDC or not, um, we will make sure that our exploration and research and development understand those principles as policy priorities and we'll continue to figure out what that looks like in practice for us, um, but then also promoting that on the international stage for any CBDCs that do get developed and used. We wanna make sure that we are beyond just democratic principles, making sure that we're on the right side of promoting responsible development of digital assets, but not fostering a, an ecosystem of you know, technological innovation that is totally unchecked. Like that has been a significant challenge in the past, you know, in the wake of seeing massive data breaches and you know, massive malign influence across social media platforms, we see the fact that responsible innovation is not unchecked technological development. Um, so that's what, what the US government, I think, will have to do to be on the right side of history there. And what we're committed to do, making sure that we are promoting the positive innovations that we need to reinforce our role in the financial system um, and the strength of our national security tools and frameworks that are so reliant upon that, but then also making sure that we're, that we're mitigating the key risks that can come in the space. On the industry side, I think it means really looking to, will the industry rise to this moment? Like I mentioned before, I'm seeing encouraging trends in the kinds of developments that we've seen in parts of the cryptocurrency space, really focusing on innovative technological solutions that can, that can meet the challenge of compliance and try to build in things like decentralized identity, like sanction screening, like market protections and integrity and disclosures, drive the benefits of financial inclusion. There's a lot of potential positives that can come in the space but it can't be that unchecked technological development that doesn't account for these key issues and risks to society, to national and international security. I think that we, we will continue to, to look to the sector to rise to that challenge. You know, we would encourage industry to consider what developments can you drive and build that are consistent with the principles that and the policy objectives that the president set out in this executive order seeing how industry ends up pursuing developments like privacy preserving technologies while also building in things like lawful discoverability 
all of these things will end up, I think, showing us whether we end up on the right side of history or if we end up, you know, with an industry that's just trying to build solutions that have no means for being able to mitigate significant risks to citizens um, as well as to national security objectives. Well, Carol, you've had such an incredible perch uh, in history looking at uh, sort of the evolution and contributing to building the sort of the guardrails around the future of finance and the future of, of digital currency and and, and digital assets. And uh, so it's just a, a great privilege to have you on Techtopia and for this amazing conversation on how the U.S. government is trying to ensure that investors and consumers and businesses can participate in this new economy both safely and expansively. Thank you. It's been a wonderful position to be able to work in. I'm so grateful to the White House for the incredible leadership that they've presented, um, for bringing me aboard to be a part of this moment. Um, and thank you so much for letting me you know, speak to the Techtopia community about the kinds of work that we're sort of driving and what the industry may be looking to do to be able to, to meet these objectives that the president has laid out. Wonderful. And we look forward to having you back on to give us a progress report as this unfolds. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been great. Carol House is the Director for Cybersecurity and Secure Digital Innovation for the White House National Security Council. House joins the NSC from the U.S. Treasury's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN, where she led cybersecurity, virtual currency, and emerging technology policy efforts as a senior cyber and emerging technology policy officer. Prior to FinCEN, House worked as a Presidential Management Fellow, supporting the White House Office of Management and Budgets, Cyber and National Security Unit, and the U.S. Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs on Cybersecurity, Supply Chain, Risk Management, and Critical Infrastructure Protection Policy Issues. House is a former Army Captain who served in chemical defense and military intelligence until November 2014, including a deployment to Kandahar Province, Afghanistan, from 2012 to 2013 in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. She holds a BA in International Affairs from the University of Georgia and an MA in Security Studies from Georgetown University. This is Techtopia. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Techtopia is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of Techtopia. I'll see you then.